Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Thanks so much for tuning into our radio adaptation of Virginia Woolf's groundbreaking stream of consciousness novel, To the Lighthouse. And I just want to give a few little uh, beginning words to set the context. Virginia Woolf's remarkable novel centers around two women. The first, Mrs. Ramsey, a married woman with eight children who treasures nurturing relationships and family, but she's bound in a rigid marriage. And the other woman, Lily Briscoe, a painter, an artist, who has had to navigate her own life completely solo in order to pursue her art. And the story questions the choices that each woman has made. Who has made the right choices? Are there other choices that can be made? Where does a person's priorities lie? And the actual story takes place on two days at the same summer vacation house in England. But those two days are separated by 10 years. So those two days, 10 years apart, are tied together by one goal. The goal of a six-year-old boy, James Ramsey, and his sister Cam, to take a journey to the lighthouse, a stormy boat ride away from their summer vacation home. But they don't make it to the lighthouse on that first day because James's father forbids the trip, and so they attempt the trip 10 years later. But oh, what has happened in those 10 years between 1910 and 1920 when the novel is set? A world war, a worldwide flu epidemic. There was before and after. Very much like how in our time now, there was before and after COVID. The play is a kind of ghost story then about loss, memory, artistic vision, women's choices, and reconciliation. Now, because the novel was written experimentally as a stream of consciousness, where the character's outward dialogue and innermost thoughts are freely mingled in the text, our radio version attempts to capture that flavor by having each actor deliver not only their own spoken words out loud, but also to express their innermost thoughts in the third person. You'll soon catch on due to our excellent cast. And now our adaptation of Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. Are we going to the lighthouse tomorrow? Yes, of course, if it's fine tomorrow. But you'll have to be up with the lark. To her son, James, these words conveyed an extraordinary joy. James Ramsey, sitting on the floor cutting out pictures from the illustrated catalogue of the Army and Navy stores, endowed the picture of a refrigerator, as his mother spoke, with heavenly bliss. It was fringed with joy. But it won't be fine tomorrow. Had there been an axe handy, a poker, or any other weapon that would have gashed a hole in his father's breast and killed him, there and then, James would have seized it. But what Mr. Ramsay said was true. It was always true. He was incapable of untruth. Never tampered with a fact. Never altered a disagreeable word to suit the pleasure or convenience of any mortal being. 
least of all his own children, who sprung from his loins, should be aware from childhood that life is difficult, facts uncompromising. But it may be fine. I expect it will be fine. Mrs. Ramsay made some little twist of the reddish-brown stocking she was knitting impatiently. If she finished it tonight, if they did go to the lighthouse after all, it was to be given to the lighthouse keeper for his little boy, who was threatened with a tuberculous hip, together with a pile of old magazines and some tobacco. Poor James, how would you like to be shut up for a whole month at a time, and possibly more in stormy weather, if you were married, not to see your wife, not to know how your children were, if they were ill, if they had fallen down and broken their legs or arms, to see the same dreary waves breaking week after week, and then a dreadful storm coming, and the whole place rocking, and not be able to put your nose out of doors for fear of being swept into the sea. How would you like that? It's all due west. There'll be no landing at the lighthouse tomorrow. She wished they would both leave her and James alone and go on talking. Mr. Tansley is a sarcastic brute. To be fair for walking up and down, up and down with father, and saying who had won this, who had won that, who was a first-rate man at Latin verses, who was brilliant but I think fundamentally unsound. Now, Andrew, they were so critical, her children. They talked such nonsense. She went from the dining room, holding James by the hand, since he would not go with the others. It seemed to her such nonsense, inventing differences, when people, heaven knows, were different enough without that. The real differences are enough, quite enough. Rich and poor, high and low. The things she saw with her own eyes, weekly, daily, here or in London, when she visited this widow, or that struggling wife in person with a bag on her arm. Insoluble questions they were, it seemed to her, standing there, holding James by the hand. They had all gone, the children. Minta Doyle and Paul Rayleigh, Augustus Carmichael, her husband. They had all gone. Would it bore you to come with me, Mr Tansley? I have errands. James, I'll be back soon. But what was Mrs. Ramsay looking at? At a man pasting a bill. Craning forwards, for she was short-sighted, she read it out. A circus will visit this town. Let us all go. Had you not been taken to circuses when you were children, Mr. Tansley? Never. My father is a chemist, Mrs. Ramsay. He keeps a shop. I have paid my own way since I was thirteen. Often I went without a greatcoat in winter. I could never return hospitality at college. I had to make things last twice the time other people did. But here, the houses falling away on both sides, they came out onto the quay and the whole bay spread before them. Oh, how beautiful! That was the view that my husband loved. But now artists have come here. I'll be just a moment, Mr. Tansley. There Mr. Tansley stood in the parlour of the house where she had taken him, waiting for her, while she went upstairs a moment to see a woman. 
He heard a quick step above, heard her voice cheerful, then low, waited quite impatiently, looked forward eagerly to the walk home, determined to carry her bag, then heard her come out, shut a door, say they must ask at the house for anything they wanted, when suddenly in she came, stood for a moment silent, when all at once he realized that it was this. It was this. She was the most beautiful person he had ever seen. With stars in her eyes and veils in her hair. With cyclamen and wild violets. What nonsense was he thinking? She was fifty, at least. She had eight children. He had hold of her back. Goodbye, Elsie. For the first time in his life, Charles Tansley felt an extraordinary pride. Felt the wind and the cyclamen and the violets. For he was walking with a beautiful woman. He had hold of her bag. On her arrival home, James ran to Mrs. Ramsay. No going to the lighthouse, James. Please, Mr. Tansley. James, perhaps you will wake up and find the sun shining and the birds singing. Mr. Tansley and her husband, Mr. Ramsay, with his caustic saying that it would not be fine, had dashed James's spirit, she could see. This going to the lighthouse was a passion of his, she saw. Perhaps it will be fine tomorrow. Then, hearing something rhythmical, half said, half chanted, beginning in the garden, as her husband beat up and down the terrace. Stormed at with shot and shell. Her husband, Mr. Ramsay, sung out with the utmost intensity in her ear, made her turn apprehensively to see if anyone had heard him. Only Lily Briscoe she was glad to find, and that did not matter. But the sight of the girl standing on the edge of the lawn painting reminded her she was supposed to be keeping her head as much in the same position as possible for Lily's picture. Lily's picture... Mrs. Ramsay smiled. With her little Chinese eyes and her puckered-up face, she would never marry. One could not take a painting very seriously. Stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode in well. Mr. Ramsay almost knocked Lily Briscoe's easel over coming down upon her. Mercifully, Mr. Ramsay turned sharp and rode off. Never was anybody at once so ridiculous and so alarming. But so long as he kept like that, waving, shouting, she was safe. He would not stand still and look at her picture. And that was what Lily Briscoe could not have endured. Even while she looked at the mass, at the line, at the color, at Mrs. Ramsay sitting in the window with James, she kept a feeler on her surroundings, lest someone should creep up and suddenly she should find her picture looked at. Now she was aware of someone coming out of the house, coming towards her, but somehow divined from the footfall, William Banks, so that though her brush quivered, she did not, as she would have done had it been Mr. Tansley, Paul Rayleigh, Minta Doyle, or practically anybody else, turn her canvas upon the grass, but let it stand. William Banks stood beside her, conversing. Your shoes are excellent, Miss Briscoe. They allow the toes their natural expansion. It's chilly, Miss Briscoe. Would you care for a stroll? Oh, I'll come, yes. It suddenly gets cold. The sun seems to give less heat. Someone had blundered. 
Looking at the far sand hills, William Banks thought of Ramsay. Ramsay lived in a welter of children, whereas Banks was childless and a widower. He was anxious that Lily Briscoe should not disparage Ramsay, a great man in his own way, yet should understand how things stood between them, their paths lying different ways. There had been certainly for no one's fault some tendency when they met to repeat. The Ramsays were not rich, and it was a wonder how they managed to contrive it all. Eight children, to feed eight children on philosophy. It was when she took her brush in hand that the whole thing changed. It was in that moment's flight between the picture and her canvas that often brought her to the verge of tears, struggling against terrific odds to maintain her courage to say, but this is what I see. This is what I see and had much to do to control her impulse to fling herself at Mrs. Ramsay's knee and say to her, I'm in love with this all, waving her hand at the hedge, at the house, at the children. It was absurd. It was impossible. Could one help noticing that habits grew on Mr. Ramsay? Eccentricities, weaknesses, perhaps. It's astonishing that a man of Ramsay's intellect could depend so much as he did upon people's praise. Oh, but think of his work. Ramsay is one of those men who do their best work before they are 40. He had made a definite contribution to philosophy in one little book when he was only five and 20. It's the boy, Jasper. They turned the way the starlings flew over the terrace. Following the scatter of swift-flying birds in the sky, they stepped through the gap in the high hedge straight into Mr. Ramsay. Someone had blundered. Oh. Oh? Oh? Mr. Ramsay's eyes, glazed with emotion, defiant with tragic intensity, met theirs for a second and trembled on the verge of recognition. But then, raising his hand... Halfway to his face, as if to avert, to brush off in an agony of peevish shame their normal gaze, he turned abruptly. Lily Briscoe and Mr. Banks, looking uneasily up into the sky, observed that the flock of starlings which Jasper had routed with his gun had settled on the tops of the elm trees. And even if it isn't fine tomorrow, James, it will be another day. And now, stand up and let me measure your leg. My dear, stand still. How could I see if it was too long or if it was too short? Smiling, for it was an admirable idea that had flashed upon her this very second. William and Lily should marry. She took the heather mixture stocking with its crisscross of steel needles at the mouth of it and measured it against James's leg. Stand still. Don't be tiresome. It's too short. Ever so much too short. Let us find another picture to cut out. At the window, Mr. Ramsay bent quizzically and whimsically to tickle James's bare calf with a sprig of something. James will have to write his dissertation one of these days. Hating his father, James brushed away the tickling spray with which Mr. Ramsay teased his youngest son's bare leg. I am trying to get these tiresome stockings finished to send to Sawley's little boy tomorrow. 
There isn't the slightest possible chance that we could go to the lighthouse tomorrow. How do you know? The wind often changed. Damn you! Not with the barometer falling and the wind due west. I'll, I'll step over and ask the coast guards if you like. I am quite ready to take your word for it. Only then they need not cut sandwiches. That was all. It won't rain. Someone had blundered. And off he went again, striding off up and down the terrace. Someone had blundered. Mr. Ramsay looked at his wife and son in the window. They fortified him, and he concentrated his effort to arrive at a perfectly clear understanding of the problem which now engaged the energies of his splendid mind. And it was a splendid mind. For if thought is like the keyboard of a piano, divided into so many notes, or like the alphabet is ranged in 26 letters, all in order from A to Z, then his splendid mind had no sort of difficulty in running over those letters one by one, firmly and accurately, until it had reached, say, the letter Q. He reached Q. Very few people in the whole of England ever reach Q. But after Q, what comes next? After Q, there are a number of letters, the last of which is scarcely visible to mortal eyes, but glimmers red in the distance. Said is only reached by one man in a generation. Still, if he could reach all, it would be something. Here, at least, was Q. Q he was sure of. Q he could demonstrate. Then, oh, he braced himself. He, Clenched himself. Ah, is then what is ah? A shatter, like the leathern eyelid of a lizard, flickered over the intensity of his gaze and obscured the letter R. In that flash of darkness, he heard people saying, "He." was a failure, that R was beyond him. He would never reach R. On to R. What's more, R. He stood stock still by the urn with the geranium flowing over it. How many men in a thousand million, he asked himself, Reach said after all. And his fame lasts how long? Who then could 
blame the leader of that forlorn party if before death stiffens his limbs, he does a little consciously raise his numbed fingers to his brow and squares his shoulders so that when the search party comes, they will find him dead at his post, the fine figure of a soldier. Mr. Ramsay squared his shoulders and stood very upright by the urn. But his son hated him. He hated him for coming up to them, for stopping and looking down on them. He hated him for interrupting them. But most of all, he hated the twang and twitter of his father's emotion, which, vibrating around them, disturbed the perfect simplicity and good sense of his relations with his mother. Nothing would make Mr. Ramsay move on. There he stood, demanding sympathy. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. Charles Tansley thinks you the greatest metaphysician of the time. I am a failure. Well, look then. Peel then. If you put implicit faith in me, nothing should hurt you. However deep you buried yourself or climbed high, not for a second should you find yourself without me. I'll take a turn. I watch the children playing cricket. The father of eight children has no choice. Yes, Miss Bishkel, it is a thousand pities. It is a thousand pities that Ramsay cannot behave a little more like other people. Is Ramsay a bit of a hypocrite, perhaps? Oh, no, Mr. Banks. Mr. Ramsay is the most sincere of men, the truest, the best. What did you wish to indicate in your painting by the triangular purple shape just there? It is Mrs. Ramsay reading to James. I know your objection that no one can tell it for a human shape, but I've made no attempt at likeness. But what reason have you introduced them then? Why, indeed. Except that if there, in that corner, it was bright, here, in this, I felt the need of darkness. Mother and child, then. Objects of universal veneration, in this case, the mother is famous for her beauty, might be reduced to a purple shadow without a reference. But the picture is not of them, or not in your sense. There are other senses, too, in which one might reference them, by a shadow here, and a light there, for instance. I suppose a picture must be a tribute. A mother and child might be reduced to a shadow without irreverence. A light here requires a shadow there. Now the truth is that all my prejudices are on the other side. Lights and shadows, which to be honest, I've never considered before. I'd like to have it explained. What then did you wish to make of it? It was a question Lily remembered how to connect this mass on the right hand with that on the left. She might do it by bringing the line of the branch. She stopped. She did not want to bore him. She took the canvas lightly off the easel. But it had been seen. This man had shared with her something profoundly intimate. And thanking Mr. Ramsay for it and Mrs. Ramsay for it and the hour and the place, crediting the world with a power which she had not suspected that one could walk away down that long gallery not alone anymore, but arm in arm with somebody. The strangest feeling in the world, and the most exhilarating. 
She nicked the catch of her paint box to more firmly than was necessary, and the nick seemed to surround in a circle forever the paint box, the lawn, Mr. Banks, and that wild villain Cam dashing past. Cam, I want you a moment. Cam, ask Mildred if Andrew, Miss Doyle, and Mr. Rayleigh have come back. No, they haven't, and I've told Ellen to clear away tea. Minta Doyle and Paul Rayleigh had not come back then. Well, that could only mean... Mrs. Ramsay thought one thing. Minta must accept Paul, or she must refuse him. This going off after luncheon for a walk, even though Andrew was with them. What could it mean? Except that she had decided rightly to accept that good fellow, who might not be brilliant... But then she realised that James was tugging at her to make her go on reading aloud. All right, James. More of the fisherman and his wife. Come in or go out, Cam. Flounder, flounder in the sea. Come, I pray thee, hear to me. For my wife, good Isabel, wills not as I'd have her will. But outside a great storm was raging and blowing so hard that he could scarcely keep his feet. Houses and trees toppled over, the mountains trembled, rocks rolled into the sea, the sky was pitch black, and it thundered and lightninged, and... And there they are, living still at this very time. And that's the end. Oh... But she never wanted James to grow a day older, or Cam either. Why should they grow up and lose all that? He was the most gifted, the most sensitive of her children. But all, she thought, were full of promise. Prue, a perfect angel with the others. And sometimes now, at night especially, she took one's breath away with her beauty. Andrew. Even her husband admitted that his gift for mathematics was extraordinary. And Nancy and Roger, they were both wild creatures now, scampering about over the country all day long. As for Rose, her mouth was too big, but she had a wonderful gift with her hands. She did not like it that Jasper should shoot birds, but it was only a stage, they all went through stages. Why, she asked, pressing her chin on James's head, should they grow up so fast? Are we going to the lighthouse? No, not tomorrow. Your father says not. Jasper's shooting birds. <laughs> it's natural in a boy, and I trust he will find better ways of amusing himself before long. Yes, all children go through stages. Have you heard the children's nickname for Charles Tansley? The Atheist, they called him. The Little Atheist. <laughs> He's not a polished specimen. Far from it. I suppose it's all right leaving him to his own devices. Oh, he has his dissertation to write. I know all about that. He talked of nothing else. It was about the influence of somebody upon something. Well, it's all he has to count on. Pray heaven he won't fall in love with Prue. Oh, I'd disinherit her if she married him. There's no harm in him. 
I was wondering whether it was any use sending down bulbs. Did they plant them? These flowers seem creditable. Yes, but then these I had put in with my own hands. The question was, what happened if I sent bulbs down? Did Kennedy plant them? If I stood over him all day long with a spade in my hand, he did sometimes do a stroke of work. <laughs> You're teaching your daughters to exaggerate. My Aunt Camilla was far worse than I am. Nobody ever held up your Aunt Camilla as a model of virtue that I'm aware of. She was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. Oh. Somebody else was that. Prue is going to be far more beautiful than she was. I see no trace of it. Well, then look tonight. I wish Andrew could be induced to work harder. He would lose every chance of a scholarship if he did it. Oh, scholarships. I should be very proud of Andrew if he got a scholarship. I would be just as proud of him if he didn't. Isn't it late? It's, it's only just past seven. What had you wanted to tell me? I don't like to see you look so sad. Only wool gathering. I've been reading fairy tales to James. I think I'll be off for a day's walk if the weather holds. I've had about enough of Banks and of Carmichael. I'd like a little solitude. Yes. It sometimes seemed to me that in a little house out there alone, we could... It's a poor little place. It is a perfectly lovely evening. And what are you groaning about? I'm not complaining. Best and brightest, come away. Miss Giddings! Yes, fine, very fine. He pretended to admire the flowers. But she knew quite well that he did not admire them, or even realise that they were there. It was only to please her. Ah, but was that not Lily Briscoe strolling along with William Banks? She focused her short-sighted eyes upon the backs of a retreating couple. Yes, indeed it was. Did that not mean that they would marry? Yes, it must. What an Admirable idea. They must marry. I've been to Amsterdam. I've seen the Rembrandts. Been to Madrid. Unfortunately, it was Good Friday and the Prado was shut. Rome. Have you ever been to Rome, Miss Briscoe? Oh, you should. It would be a wonderful experience for you. My wife had been in bad health for many years, so our sightseeing has been on a modest scale. I've been to Brussels. I've been to Paris, but only for a flying visit to see an aunt who was ill. And I've been to Dresden. There are masses of pictures I've not seen. Perhaps it's better not to see pictures. They only make one hopelessly discontented with one's own work. One could carry that point of view too far. 
we can't all be Titians and we can't all be Darwins at the same time. I doubt whether you could have your Darwin and your Titian if it weren't for humble people like ourselves. Perhaps what I'm saying does not apply to pictures. Anyhow, I would always go on painting because it interests me. Yes, I'm sure you would. Have you had difficulty in finding subjects in London? As they reached the end of the lawn, they saw the Ramses. So that is marriage, Lily thought. A man and a woman looking at a girl throwing a ball. That is what Mrs. Ramsey tried to tell me the other night. I have triumphed tonight, Mr. Banks. You've agreed to dine with us and not run off to your own lodgings. Thank you. Prue, haven't they come back yet? Did Nancy go with Paul and Minta and Andrew and the others? Yes, I think Nancy did go with them down to the beach. Damn your eyes! Damn your eyes! <laughs> you all have to join in and sing the chorus and shout it out together. Damn your eyes! Damn your eyes! Minta's a good walker, Paul. It would be fatal to let the tide come in and cover up all the good hunting grounds before we got onto the beach. The sea is coming in. Andrew, I'll run on ahead and catch her. A little later, Andrew watched as his sister Nancy leapt splashing through the shallow waves onto the shore and ran up the beach behind a rock in there. Oh heavens. In each other's arms were Paul and Minta. Kissing, probably? Nancy was outraged. Indignant. She and Andrew put on their shoes and stockings in dead silence without saying a thing about it. Indeed, they were rather sharp with each other. Then Minta cried out. I've lost my grandmother's brooch. My grandmother's brooch, the sole ornament she possessed. A weeping willow it was, you must remember it, set in pearls. You must have seen it, the brooch which grandmother had fastened her cap with to the last day of her life. Now I've lost it. I'd rather have lost anything than that. I'll go back and look for it. Minta, make a thorough search between this point and that. We shall be cut off, Paul. Minta. If the brooch was there, it will still be there in the morning. Grandmother's brooch, Paul. I'd rather have lost anything. I'm famous for finding things. Once, when I was a little boy, I had found a gold watch. I'll get up at daybreak and I'm positive I'll find it. I'll not hear of your getting up at dawn. It was lost. I know that. I had the presentiment when I put it on this afternoon. And secretly, Paul resolved that he would not tell her, but he would slip out of the house at dawn when they were all asleep, and if he could not find it, he would go to Edinburgh and buy her another, just like it, but more beautiful. He would prove what he could do. And as they came out on the hill and saw the lights of the town beneath them, the lights coming out suddenly, one by one, like things that were going to happen to him, his marriage, his children, his house, as they turned by the crossroads, he thought, what an appalling experience he had been through. And he must tell someone. Mrs. Ramsay, of course. For it took his breath away to think what he had been. And done. Prue, haven't they come back yet? Did Nancy go with Minta and the others? Yes, I think Nancy did go with them down to the beach. Shall we wait for them? Not for the Queen of England, not for the Empress of Mexico. 
Let's go down, and Jasper, because he was a gentleman, should give me his arm, and Rose, as she was the lady, should carry my handkerchief. And what else? Oh, yes, it might be cold. A shawl. Choose me a shawl. There, there the crows are again. Don't you think they mind, Jasper, having their wings broken? Why would you want to shoot poor old Joseph and Mary? They've come back. Then the great clangor of the gong announced solemnly, authoritatively, that all those scattered about must leave all that. The novels on the bed tables and the diaries which were so private and assemble in the dining room for dinner. And, like some queen, she went down and crossed the hall and bowed her head very slightly, as if she accepted what they could not say, their tribute to her beauty. She looks lovely. But she stopped. Yes, she is. There was a smell of burning. Could they have left the bouffon daub over boil? She wondered. Pray heaven not. But what have I done with my life? thought Mrs. Ramsay, taking her place at the head of the table and looking at all the plates making white circles on it. William, sit by me. Lily, over there. Mr. Tansley, sit there, please. At the far end was her husband sitting down, all in a heap, frowning. What at? She did not know. She did not mind. She could not understand how she had ever felt any emotion or affection for him. She had a sense of being past everything, through everything, out of everything, as she helped the soup. It's all come to an end, she thought, while they came in one after another. Mr. Tansley, sit there, please. Mr. Carmichael, there. Mr. Banks, did you find your letters? I told them to put them in the hall for you. Lily Briscoe watched her. Why does she pity him? He's not in the least pitiable. He has his work. She remembered all of a sudden as if she had found a treasure that she had her work. In a flash, she saw her picture and thought, yes. I shall put the tree further in the middle, then I shall avoid that awkward space. That's what I shall do. That's what has been puzzling me. She took up the salt cellar and put it down again on a flower pattern in the tablecloth so as to remind herself to move the tree. It's odd that one scarcely gets anything worth having by post. Yet one always wants one's letters. Do you write many letters, Mr. Tansley? I write to my mother. Otherwise, I do not suppose I wrote one letter a month. Now we're going to the lighthouse tomorrow, Mrs. Ramsay. Oh, Mr. Tansley, do take me to the lighthouse with you. I should so love it. She was telling lies he could see. She was saying what she did not mean to annoy him for some reason. She was laughing at him. It would be too rough for you tomorrow. You would get sick. It annoyed Mr. Tansley that she should have made him speak like that. With Mrs. Ramsay listening, he turned to her. But Mrs. Ramsay was talking about people he had never heard of, to William Banks. Mr. Banks, it must have been 15, no, 20 years ago that I last saw her. You've actually heard from her, this evening. 
And was Carrie still living at Marlow? And was everything still the same? Oh, I could remember it as if it were yesterday. Had Carrie written to you herself? Yes, she says they're building a new billiard room. No, no. That was out of the question. Building a new billiard room. It seems to me impossible. I cannot say that there is anything very odd about it. They are very well off now. Should I give your love to Carrie? Oh, no. But how strange that they should be going on there still. For it was extraordinary to think that they had been capable of going on living all those years when she had not thought of them more than once all that time. The thought was strange and distasteful. People soon drift apart. Mildred, uh, please make sure you're keeping the food hot. Uh, children, I wish one of you would run up to Roger's room. I'm so sorry, Mr Banks, how you must detest dining in this bare garden. No, not at all. Are you a good sailor, Mr Tansley? I've never been sick in my life. I had been thrown out of a boat when I was a baby, and my father used to fish me out with a boat hook. That was how I learned to swim. One of my uncles kept a light on some rock or other off the Scottish coast. I'd been there with him in a storm. But how long do they leave men on a lighthouse? So now, Mrs. Ramsay thought, she could return to that dreamland, that unreal but fascinating place, the Manning's drawing room at Marlow twenty years ago where one moved about without haste or anxiety, for there was no future to worry about. He said they had built a billiard room. Was it possible? Would William go on talking about the Mannings? She wanted him to. But no, for some reason he was no longer in the mood. She tried. He did not respond. She could not force him. The children are disgraceful. Punctuality being one of the minor virtues which we do not acquire until later in life. If at all. Perhaps the others were saying something interesting. They were all listening. But already bored, Lily felt that something was lacking. All of them bending themselves to listen thought, pray heaven that the inside of my mind may not be exposed for each thought. The others are feeling this. They are outraged and indignant with the government about the fishermen, whereas I feel nothing at all. Tell me now. So they argued about politics, and Lily looked at the leaf on the tablecloth, and Mrs. Ramsay, leaving the argument entirely in the hands of the two men, wondered why she was so bored by this talk and wished, looking at her husband at the other end of the table, that he would say something. One word. For if he said a thing, it would make all the difference. He went to the heart of things. He cared about fishermen and their wages. He could not sleep for thinking of them. She looked at him, thinking to find this in his face. He would be looking magnificent. But not in the least. He was screwing his face up. He was scowling and frowning and flushing with anger. What on earth was it about? Only that poor old Mr Carmichael had asked for another plate of soup. That was all. Mr Ramsay frowned at her. He hated people wallowing in food. He hated everything dragging on for hours. But he had controlled himself. 
Mr. Ramsay would have her observe. Light the candles. Now all the candles were lit up, and the faces on both sides of the table were brought nearer by the candlelight. Some change at once went through them all, and they were all conscious of making a party together in a hollow on an island. We are awfully late. We are horribly late. I lost my brooch, my grandmother's brooch. Minta, how could you be such a goose as to go to the beach with your jewellery? We went back to look for Minta's brooch. We. That was enough. We did this. We did that. They'll say that all their lives, she thought. And an exquisite scent of olives and oil and juice rose from the great brown dish as Marta, with a little flourish, took the cover off. The dish is a triumph. It is a French recipe of my grandmother's. What passes for cookery in England is an abomination. It is putting cabbages in water. It is roasting meat till it is like leather. It is cutting off the delicious skins of vegetables, in which all the virtue of the vegetables contained. And the waste. A whole French family could live on what an English cook throws away. When did Minta lose her brooch? On the beach. I'm going to find it. I'm getting a birdie. Let me come with you. <laughs> it was the odd chuckle Paul gave as if he had said, throw yourself off the cliff if you like, I don't care. It scorched her. And Lily, looking at Minta, being charming to Mr. Ramsay at the other end of the table, flinched for her. At any rate, she said to herself, catching sight of the salt cellar on the pattern, she need not marry, thank heaven. She need not undergo that degradation. She was saved from that dilution. She would move the tree rather more to the middle. Then there is that liquid the English call coffee. Oh, coffee. Lily, anyhow, agrees with me. Andrew, hold your plate lower or I shall spill it. There was in Lily a thread of something, a flare of something, something of her own which Mrs. Ramsay liked very much indeed. But no man would, she feared. Obviously not, unless it were a much older man like William Banks. Oh, but nonsense, she thought. William must marry Lily. The Waverley novels. I read one of them every six months. Ah, but how long do you think it'll last? I attach no importance to changes in fashion. Who could tell what was going to last? In literature, indeed, in anything else. Let us enjoy what we do enjoy. Anyhow, Scott will last me my lifetime. I do not believe that anyone really enjoys reading Shakespeare. Very few people like it as much as they say they do. But there is considerable merit in some of the plays, nevertheless. They lasted. I read some of Tolstoy at school. There was one I always remembered. But I forgot the name. Russian names are impossible. Bronsky! I remembered that because I always thought it's such a good name for a villain. Vronsky. Oh, Anna Karenina. How odd to see them sitting there in a row, her children. Jasper, Rose, Prue, Andrew. 
almost silent, but with some joke of their own going on, she guessed. But when she looked at Prue tonight, she saw that this was not quite true of her. The faintest light was on her face, as if the glow of Minta opposite, as some excitement, some anticipation of happiness was reflected in her. She kept looking at Minta shyly, yet curiously, so that Mrs. Ramsay looked from one to the other and said, speaking to Prue in her own mind, You will be as happy as she is one of these days. But dinner was over. It was time to go. To see the kings go riding by Over lawn and daisy lee With their palm sheaves and cedar leaves Loriana, Lurelee, Loriana, Lurelee. Mrs. Ramsay, with her foot on the threshold, waited a moment longer in a scene which was vanishing even as she looked, and then, as she moved and took Minta's arm and left the room, it changed. It shaped itself differently. It had become, she knew, giving one last look at it over her shoulder. Already the past. Mrs. Ramsay going upstairs in the lamplight alone. Where, Lily wondered, was she going so quickly? Mrs. Ramsay's world was changing. All must be in order. She must get that right and that right. She turned the handle firmly, pursing her lips slightly, as if to remind herself that she must not speak aloud. But directly she came in, she saw the children were not asleep. There was James wide awake and Cam sitting boat upright. What was the matter? It was that horrid skull again. Cam, you must go to sleep. It had great horns. You must go to sleep and dream of lovely palaces. I can see the horns all over the room. But think, Cam, it's only an old pig. It's a horrid thing branching at me all over the room. Well then, we will cover it up. You must shut your eyes and go to sleep and dream of mountains and valleys and stars falling and parrots and antelopes and gardens and everything lovely. Now, you, James, must go to sleep too. For see, the poor skull is still there. They have not touched it. It is there quite unhurt. Will we go to the lighthouse tomorrow? No, not tomorrow, but soon... The next fine day. He was very good. He lay down. She covered him up. But he would never forget she knew. And she felt angry with Charles Tansley, with her husband, and with herself, for she had raised his hopes. Then, feeling for her shawl, and remembering that she had wrapped it round the boar's skull, she got up and pulled the window down another inch or two, and heard the wind and murmured good-night and left the room. Mother? Prue? We thought of going down to the beach to watch the waves. Of course, you must go. That's my mother, thought Prue. And from having been quite grown up a moment before, 
talking with the others, she became a child again, and thinking what a chance it was for Minta and Paul and Lily to see her mother, and feeling what an extraordinary stroke of fortune it was for her to have her, and how she would never grow up and never leave home. Of course, you must go. I only wish I could come too. Will you be very late? Have any of you got a watch? Yes, Paul has. I've done it, Mrs. Ramsay. I owe it all to you. How I wish I could come with you. Coming into the drawing room, she had to come here to get something she wanted. She looked at her husband and saw that he did not want to be interrupted. That was clear. He was reading something that moved him very much. He was half smiling, and then she knew he was controlling his emotion. He was tossing the pages over. He was acting it. Perhaps he was thinking himself the person in the book. She wondered what book it was. Oh, it was one of old Sir Walter's she saw, adjusting the shade of her lamp so that the light fell on her knitting. For Charles Tansley had been saying that people don't read Scott anymore. Then her husband thought, that's what they'll say of me. He was always uneasy about himself. He would always be worrying about his own books. Will they be read? Are they good? Why aren't they better? What do people think of me? It didn't matter any of it, she thought. A great man, a great book, fame. Who could tell? She knew nothing about it. But there is something I want, something I've come to get. And she fell deeper and deeper without knowing quite what it was, with her eyes closed. She turned and felt on the table beside her for a book. And all the lives we ever lived, and all the lives to be, are full of trees and changing leaves. She read and turned the page, swinging herself, zigzagging this way and that, from one line to another until a little sound roused her, her husband slapping his thighs. Their eyes met for a second, but they did not want to speak to each other. They had nothing to say, but something seemed, nevertheless, to go from him to her. It was the life. It was the power of it. It was the tremendous humour she knew that made him slap his thighs. Don't say anything, he seemed to be saying. Now, he felt, it didn't matter a damn who reached Zed. Somebody would reach it. If not he, then another. He was determined. He would not bother her again. He looked at her reading. She looked very peaceful reading. She was astonishingly beautiful. Her beauty seemed to him, if that were possible, to increase. What are you reading? As with your shadow, I with these did play. They're engaged, Paul and Minta. So I guessed. 
How nice it would be to marry a man with a wash leather bag for his watch. <laughs> you won't finish that stocking tonight. No, I shan't finish it. And what then? For she felt that he was still looking at her, but that his look had changed. He wanted something. Wanted the thing she always found it so difficult to give him. Wanted her to tell him that she loved him. And that, no, she could not do. A heartless woman, he called her. She never told him that she loved him. But it was not so. It was not so. It was only that she could never say what she felt. Was there no crumb on his coat? Nothing she could do for him? Getting up, she stood at the window with the reddish-brown stocking in her hands, partly to turn away from him, partly because she remembered how beautiful it often is, the sea at night. But she knew that he had turned his head as she turned. He was watching her. She knew that he was thinking, you're more beautiful than ever. Will you not tell me, just for once, that you love me? But she could not do it. She could not say it. Then knowing that he was watching her, instead of saying anything, she turned, holding her stocking and looked at him. And as she looked at him, she began to smile. For though she had not said a word, he knew, of course he knew, that she loved him. He could not deny it. And smiling, she looked out of the window. Yes, you were right. It's going to be wet tomorrow. You won't be able to go. And she looked at him, smiling for she had triumphed again. She had not said it, yet he knew. It's almost too dark to see. One could hardly tell which is the sea and which is the land. Well, we must wait for the future to show. Do we leave that light burning, Prue? No, not if everyone's in. Andrew, just put out the light in the hall. Mr. Ramsay, stumbling along a passage one dark morning, stretched his arms out. But Mrs. Ramsay, having died rather suddenly the night before, his arms, though stretched out, remained empty. As summer neared, as the evenings lengthened, there came to the wakeful, the hopeful, walking the beach, the impossible to resist strange intimation which every flower, gull, tree, man and woman, and the white earth itself seemed to declare that good triumphs, happiness prevails, order rules. Through Ramsay, leaning on her father's arm, was given in marriage. What, people said, could have been more fitting 
And, they added, how beautiful she looked. Prue Ramsey died that summer in some illness connected with childbirth, which was indeed a tragedy, people said. Everything they said had promised so well. And now, in the heat of the summer, the wind sent its spies about the house again. Flies wove a web in the sunny rooms. Weeds that had grown too close to the glass in the night tapped methodically at the window pane. When darkness fell, the stroke of the lighthouse came. But later in the summer came ominous sounds, like the measured blows of hammers dulled on felt which with their repeated shock still further loosened the shawl and cracked the teacups. Night after night, and sometimes in plain midday, when the roses were bright, the thud of something falling, a shell exploded. Twenty or thirty young men were blown up in France. Among them, Andrew Ramsey, whose death, mercifully, was instantaneous. The house was left. The house was deserted. The swaying shawl swung to and fro. The swallows nested in the drawing-room. The lawn waved with long grass. But there was a force working. Something not highly conscious. All of a sudden, one of the young ladies wrote, Would Mrs. McNabb see that the house was ready? Would she get this done? Would she get that done, all in a hurry? They might be coming for the summer. Lily Briscoe had her bag carried up to the house late one evening in September. Mr. Carmichael came by the same train. She laid her head on the pillow in the clean, still room and heard the sea. What did she feel? Come back after all these years and Mrs. Ramsay dead. Now she was awake at her old place at the breakfast table, but alone. It was very early, too, not yet eight. There was this expedition. They were going to the lighthouse. Mr. Ramsay, Cam, and James. They should have gone already. They had to catch the tide. And Cam was not ready. And James was not ready. And Nancy had forgotten to order the sandwiches. And Mr. Ramsay had lost his temper and banged out of the room. What's the use of going now? Nancy had vanished. There he was, marching up and down the terrace in a rage. How aimless it was. How chaotic, how unreal it was, she thought, looking at her empty coffee cup. Mrs. Ramsay dead. Andrew killed. Prue dead, too. James! Pam! Did you not want to go? 
Yes. Yes, oh, yes, we'll both be ready. You will find us much changed. Suddenly Lily remembered. We had sat there last, ten years ago, there had been a little sprig or leaf pattern on the tablecloth, which she had looked at in a moment of revelation. There had been a problem about a foreground of a picture of the tree to the middle, she had said. She had never finished that picture. She would paint that picture now. It had been knocking about in her mind all these years. With the brush slightly trembling in her fingers, she looked at the hedge, the step, the wall. It was all Mrs. Ramsay's doing. She was dead. It was Lily at 44, wasting her time, unable to do a thing, standing there playing at painting, playing at the one thing one did not play at. And it was all Mrs. Ramsay's fault. She was dead. The step where she used to sit was empty. She was dead. Lily seemed to have shriveled slightly, Mr. Ramsay thought. She looked a little skimpy, wispy, but not unattractive. He liked her. There had been some talk of her marrying William Banks once, but nothing had come of it. His wife had been fond of her. He had been a little out of temper too at breakfast. Was anybody looking after you? Have you everything you wanted? Oh, thanks, everything. I hope it will be calm enough for you to land at the lighthouse. Uh, I have a particular reason for wanting to go to the lighthouse. My wife used to send the men things. And there was a poor boy with a tuberculous hip, the light keeper's son. Such expeditions are very painful. They're very exhausting. His immense self-pity, his demand for sympathy poured and spread itself in pools at their feet. And all she did, miserable sinner that she was, was to draw her skirts a little closer round her ankles, lest she should get wet. What beautiful boots! Lily was ashamed of herself. To praise his boots when he asked her to solace his soul? When he had shown her his bleeding hands, his lacerated heart, and asked her to pity them, then to say cheerfully, Ah, but what beautiful boots you wear. Ah, yes, they are first-rate boots. There's only one man in England who could make boots like that. Now, most leather is mere brown paper and cardboard. Now, let me see if you can tie a knot. No, look, look here. But now, just as she wished to say something to him, could have said something, perhaps. Here they were, Cam and James. Mr. Ramsay slung a knapsack round his shoulders. He shared out the parcels. There were a number of them, ill-tied in brown paper. He had all the appearance of a leader, making ready for an expedition. Then... Wheeling about, he led the way with his firm military tread in those wonderful boots, carrying brown paper parcels 
down the path, his children following him. Politely, but very distantly, Mr. Ramsay raised his hand and saluted her as they passed. Can't paint. Can't write. Charles Tansley used to say that women can't paint, can't write. Coming up behind her, he had stood close beside her, a thing she hated as she painted here on this very spot. What is the meaning of life? That was all. A simple question. The great revelation had never come. Instead, there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. Here was one. Mrs. Ramsay saying, life stands still here. Mrs. Ramsay making of the moment something permanent. This was of the nature of a revelation. In the midst of chaos, there was shape. Life stands still here, Mrs. Ramsay said. Mrs. Ramsay? Mrs. Ramsay? The boat made no motion at all. Mr. Ramsay sat in the middle of the boat. He would be impatient in a moment, James thought, looking at his father. James steered. Cam sat alone in the bow. Their father, they knew, would never be content until they were flying along. He would keep looking for a breeze, fidgeting, saying things under his breath. He had made them come. He had forced them to come. In their anger, they hoped that the breeze would never rise that he might be thwarted in every possible way since he had forced them to come against their wills. But James and Cam vowed, in silence as they walked, to stand by each other and carry out the great compact, to resist tyranny to the death. They hoped he would be thwarted. They hoped the whole expedition would fail and they would have to put back with their parcels to the beach. A little way out... The sails slowly swung round. The boat quickened itself, flattened itself, and shot off. Now they would sail on for hours like this. Look out! Look out! Eleven ships here had been driven into the bay in a storm. Cam thought, feeling proud of her father, without knowing quite why, had he been there, he would have launched the lifeboat. He was so brave, he was so adventurous, Cam thought. But their grievance weighed them down. The boat was leaning, the water was sliced sharply and fell away in green cascades, and its speed hypnotized her, and the tie between her and James sagged a little. James, with his eye fixed on the sail and on the horizon, steered grimly. But he began to think as he steered, that he might escape. He might be quit of it all. They might land somewhere and be free then. Both of them, looking at each other for a moment, had a sense of escape and exaltation, what with the speed and the change. But but the breeze bred in Mr. Ramsay to the same excitement. We perished each alone. But I beneath a rougher sea was whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. We perished each alone. 
Mr. Ramsey clutched his fingers and determined. He would make Cam smile at him. He would find some simple, easy thing to say to her. Who is looking after the puppy today? James the lawgiver, with the tablets of eternal wisdom laid open on his knee, said, Resist him! Fight him! Jasper's looking after the puppy. Uh, and what are you going to call him? I had a dog when I was a little boy called Frisk. Cam wished passionately to move some obstacle that lay upon her tongue and to say, Oh yes, uh, Frisk. I'll call him Frisk. She wanted even to say, Was that the dog that found its way over the moor alone? But try as she might, she could think of nothing to say like that. Fierce and loyal to the compact, yet passing on to her father, Unsuspected by James, a private token of the love she felt for him. For, she thought, you're not exposed to it, to this pressure and division of feeling. For no one attracted her more. His hands were beautiful, and his feet, and his voice, and his words, and his haste, and his temper, and his oddity, and his passion and his saying straight out before everyone, we perish each alone. But what remained intolerable, she thought, sitting upright, was that crass blindness and tyranny of his which had poisoned her childhood and raised bitter storms, so that even now she woke in the night trembling with rage and remembered, do this, do that. So she said nothing but looked doggedly and sadly at the shore, as if the people there, she thought, were free like smoke, were free to come and go like ghosts. They have no suffering there, she thought. Yes, that is their boat, Billy Briscoe decided. There he sits, and the children are quite silent still. And she could not reach him either. The sympathy she had not given him weighed her down, made it difficult for her to paint. At the same time, she seemed to be sitting beside Mrs. Ramsay on the beach. The dead, oh, the dead. One pitied them, one brushed them aside, one had even a little contempt for them. They are at our mercy. Mrs. Ramsay has faded and gone, she thought. We can override her wishes, improve away her limited, old-fashioned ideas. Marry, marry. And one would have to say to her, it is all gone against your wishes. They're happy like that. I'm happy like this. Life has changed completely. She looked at her picture. You, and I, and she, pass and vanish. Nothing stays, all changes, but not words, not paint. Yet it would be hung in the attic, she thought. It would be rolled up and flung under a sofa. 
Yet even so, one might say, even of this scrawl of what it attempted, that it remained forever. She was going to say, when looking at the picture, she was surprised to find that she could not see it. Her eyes were full of a hot liquid. She did not think of tears at first, which, without disturbing the firmness of her lips, made the air thick, rolled down her cheeks. She had perfect control of herself. Oh, yes, in every other way. Mr. Carmichael, what was it then? What did it mean? Could things thrust their hands up and grip one? Was there no safety, no learning by heart of the ways of the world? No guide? No shelter? But all was miracle and leaping from the pinnacle of a tower into the air? Could it be even for elderly people that this was life? Startling, unexpected, unknown. Mrs. Ramsey? Mrs. Ramsey? The old man had not heard her. No one had seen her step off her strip of board into the waters of annihilation. She remained a skimpy old maid holding a paintbrush. And now, slowly, the pain of the want and the bitter anger lessened. And then Lily squeezed her tubes again. She attacked that problem of the hedge. Now again, moved as she was by some instinctive need of distance and blue, she looked at the bay beneath her. Where are they now, Lily thought, looking out to sea? Where was he, that very old man who had gone past her silently, holding a brown paper parcel under his arm? They don't feel a thing there, Cam thought, looking at the shore, which, rising and falling, became steadily more distant and more peaceful. Her hand cut a trail in the sea as her mind made the green swirls and streaks into patterns. It came to a stop, flapping about waiting for a breeze in the hot sun, miles from shore, miles from the lighthouse. Everything in the whole world seemed to stand still. The sun grew hotter and everybody seemed to come very close together and to feel each other's presence, which they had almost forgotten. Mr. Ramsey went on reading with his legs curled under him. James kept dreading the moment when he would look up and speak sharply to him about something or other. And if he does, James thought, then I shall take a knife and strike him to the heart. It will rain, he remembered his father saying. You won't be able to go to the lighthouse. What's happening now? What are we dawdling about here, eh? There James sat with his hand on the tiller in the sun, staring at the lighthouse, powerless to move, powerless to flick off these grains of misery which settled on his mind one after another. A rope seemed to bind him there, and his father had knotted it, and he could only escape by taking a knife and plunging it. But at that moment the sail swung slowly round, filled slowly out. The boat seemed to shake herself, and then to move off, half-conscious in her sleep. 
and then she woke and shot through the waves. Look at him now, she wanted to say aloud to James. Look at him now! She looked at him, reading the little book with his legs curled. She gazed back over the sea at the island. About here, she thought, dabbling her fingers in the water. A ship had sunk, and she murmured, dreamily half asleep, how we perished, each alone. So much depends then, thought Lily, looking at the sea which had scarcely a stain on it. So much depends, she thought, upon distance, whether people are near us or far from us. These waters were unfathomably deep, into them had spilled so many lives. Some common feeling which held the whole together. It was some such feeling of completeness, perhaps, which ten years ago, standing almost where she stood now, had made her say that she must be in love with the place. Love had a thousand shapes. turned to a picture. She had been wasting her morning. For whatever reason, she could not achieve that razor edge of balance between two opposite forces. Mr. Ramsay and the picture, which was necessary. It was a miserable machine, an inefficient machine, she thought, the human apparatus for painting or for feeling. It always broke down at the critical moment. Let it come, she thought, if it will come. For there are moments when one can neither think nor feel. And if one can neither think nor feel, she thought, where is one? Suddenly the window at which she was looking was whitened by some light stuff behind it. At last, then, somebody had come into the drawing room. Somebody was sitting in the chair. For heaven's sake, she prayed, let them sit still there and not come floundering out to talk to her. Mercifully, whoever it was stayed still inside. Some wave of white went over the window pane. The air must have stirred some flounce in the room. Her heart leapt at her and seized her and tortured her. Mrs. Ramsay! Mrs. Ramsay! And then quietly, Mrs. Ramsay sat there quite simply in the chair, flipped her needles to and fro, knitted her reddish-brown stocking, cast her shadow on the step. There she sat. Mr. Ramsay sat there, bareheaded with the wind blowing his hair about, extraordinarily exposed to everything. He looked very old. He looked, James thought, 
getting his head now against the lighthouse. He looked as if he had become physically, that loneliness which was for both of them the truth about things. They were very close to the lighthouse now. So, it was like that, James thought. The lighthouse one had seen across the bay all these years, it was a stark tower on a bare rock. Nobody seemed to have spoken for an age. Still, her father read. It was thus that he escaped, she thought. She gazed at the immense expanse of the sea. The island had grown so small that it scarcely looked like a leaf any longer. Come now. I'm hungry. It's time for lunch. Look. There's the lighthouse. We're almost there. James was doing very well. He was keeping the boat very steady. But his father never praised him. Mr. Ramsay opened the parcel and shared out the sandwiches among them. This is right. This is it, Cam kept feeling as she peeled her hard-boiled egg. Now I can go on thinking whatever I like, and I shan't fall over a precipice or be drowned. For there he is, keeping his eye on me, she thought. We'll soon be out of it, Mr. Ramsay thought. But our children will see some strange things. Well done, James. James has steered us like a born sailor. There, Cam thought, addressing herself silently to James. You've got it out at last. For she knew that this was what James had been wanting. And she knew that now he'd got it, he was so pleased that he would not look at her or at his father. He was so pleased that he was not going to let anybody share a grain of his pleasure. His father had praised him. They must think that he was perfectly indifferent. But you've got it now, Cam thought. Mr. Ramsey buttoned his coat and turned up his trousers. He took the large, badly packed brown paper parcel which Nancy had got ready and sat with it on his knee. Thus, in complete readiness to land, he sat looking back at the island. What could her father see, Cam wondered. It was all a blur to her. What was he thinking now? What do you want? They both wanted to ask. They both wanted to say, Ask us anything and we will give it to you. But he did not ask them anything. He sat and looked at the island, and he might be thinking, We perished each alone, or he might be thinking, I have reached it, I have found it. But he said nothing. Then he put on his hat. Bring those parcels. The parcels for the lighthouse men. And they both rose to follow him as he sprang, lightly, like a young man, holding his parcel onto the rock. He must have reached it. He must have reached it. He has landed. It is finished. It is finished. She turned to her canvas. There it was, her picture. 
Yes, with all its green and blues, its lines running up and across its attempt at something. It would be hung in the attic, she thought. It would be destroyed. What did that matter? She looked at the steps. They were empty. She looked at her canvas. It was blurred. With a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there in the center. It was done. It was finished. Yes. I have had my vision. You've been listening to Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, adapted and directed for radio by Jack Shalom, exclusively for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. The cast in order of appearance was the following. James Ramsey, played by Byron O'Hanlon. Mrs. Ramsey, played by Mary Murphy. Mr. Ramsey, played by Jack Shalom. Charles Hansley, played by Joe Levine. Andrew Ramsey, played by Keyshawn Lucky. Lily Briscoe, played by Lucy McMichael. William Banks, played by Marty Levine. Cam Ramsey, played by Sarah Taylor. Crew Ramsey, played by Vivian Shalom. Paul Rayleigh, played by David Leppelstadt. Minta Doyle, played by Emma Muller. This production is dedicated to the memory of Serena Shalom. <laughs>